the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back as we head into Hour 3. It's a delight to bring back Professor Wilford Riley. He is a professor at Kentucky State University, author of several books, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, and Taboo, Ten Facts You Can't Talk About. Uh, Dr. Riley, thanks for joining us again. Welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Yeah, thanks for having me back on. You betcha. You betcha. Uh, One of my favorite public intellectuals. The White House uh, held a summit uh, yesterday uh, focusing on hate crimes and uh, the fueling of them and how how threatening they are uh, to, obviously, the United States of America. I can't help a little bit but feeling like some of this is a little overblown, some of it is a little overstated. And maybe some of it doesn't even quite come with the level of goodwill some of us uh, would expect. Let me get your sense of what these conferences and what the kinds of things the Biden-Harris administration are saying when it comes to hate crimes. Well, I mean, I mean, leaving aside the jokes like, you know, a politician not talking in good faith. How could you think this? <laughs> okay. I mean, okay. I, I think my honest opinion is that Joe Biden has settled on white supremacy. You might call it as kind of the boogeyman for his administration in the way that, for example, I think Mr. Bush, with a little more evidence, settled on terrorism. Okay. Um uh, Mr. Obama, homophobia might have been there. He also focused heavily on the war on terror, okay. so on down the line. And we've seen these panics throughout history, at least at the local level. I mean, Satanism for a while, so on down the line. Uh, I don't feel that there's a great deal of white supremacy running amok in the United States. I, I don't think in my entire life I've met more than 10 white supremacists. So it, this is going to be kind of one of those situations, I think, if you look at the recent Duke volleyball case, yeah, right. um, go back to Jussie Smollett, go way back to Tawana Brawley, where there's going to be a great deal of demand for something that doesn't exist very much. Um, when you talk about hate crimes, I mean, in all honesty, as a serious social scientist, yeah. there has been a slight upsurge in hate crimes. Yeah. The background of that, though, that's not being talked about very much is, one, that cuts in all directions, so a great number of those are directed at whites and Asians as well. And, two, that's in the context of a massive upsurge in crime. Right. So so following kind of the George Floyd summer in 2020, then in 2021, we're now seeing 20,000, 21,000 homicides a year for the first time since 1993. Okay. So every kind of murder, I mean, and that inclu- or every kind of crime, and that includes these racial fistfights that become hate crimes, has increased 20, 30 percent. There's no reason to think racial fighting would be an exception to that. But it's important to realize that we're not just seeing a surge in hate crimes, where, for example, rapes are stable, but hate is up. That's not what the picture looks like. Aha, aha. That, that is interesting. I found it a little interesting that Kamala Harris said 2020 
uh, was the year of record number of hate crimes in this country. We don't have, I don't think, the full data for 2021, but some of the research I was doing showed that actually last year, 2021, had an actual increase, uh, especially in the major metropolitan cities. And I sometimes wonder if that goes a little bit to them trying to affix something to uh, an administration that wasn't theirs, a little bit adding to the political fuel of all this. So the political purchase of it might be might be the better way to put it. Well, I mean, it is true that in 2020, I think even ahead of 21, we saw a record number of hate crimes. But so I, I was able to, I mean, I've casual friend at the FBI. This data is also sometimes online. I was able to print this out. Yep. It's important to talk about what these numbers are, though. Yeah. So, I mean, in in 2019, we saw 7,314 hate crimes, which is about typical. In 2020, we saw an all-time record, but that was 8,263 hate right. crimes. Right. right. So there are very few hate crimes, and the number of hate crimes that are officially reported kind of depends on how departments are instructed to record hate crimes. I mean, I was told that off the record, but I think everyone in the field is, is pretty aware of that. So you're not seeing, when you talk about hate crimes, 100,000 hate crimes or something like that. We've never broken 10,000 hate crimes in this country. This is not an especially hate-filled country. What the surge means is that you go in one year from 7,000 to 8,000, and then the next year you go back down to 6,000. So those are a reliable metric of ethnic conflict, and I don't think anyone would need to be told that the left and the right were, you know, clashing in the streets during the George Floyd period. But, you know, you're safe walking to the store. There's there's not an increase in hate crimes that goes beyond the increase in regular crime we've seen. Um, one final point on that, th- this increase is, again, across the board. Yeah. So in uh, 2019, we saw about 2,000 anti-black hate crimes. Right. And in 2020, we saw 2,800 anti-black hate crimes. Okay. But in uh, 2019, we saw 666 directly anti-white hate crimes. I will say those are wildly underreported. Uh, in 2020, we saw uh, about 900 anti-white hate crimes, so an increase of two to 300 there. Uh, in 2019, we saw 158 anti-Asian crimes. Uh, in 2020, we saw 379 anti-Asian crimes against that tiny minority. So what you're seeing, it seems, is increased tensions across all groups. But again, I want to keep emphasizing that's in the context of this general spike in crime, where you've also seen murders go from 14,164 in 2014 to 20,000, 21,000. So when you see crime increase, you see all crime increase. Interracial fistfights are not distinct from that that bigger category of crime. And it's a little weird, in my opinion, to say we're going to focus on interracial fistfights if you're the president, as opposed to saying we're going to focus on crime. And what what about same-race fistfights and gunfights? We've seen crime in black and even poor white communities surge. What about that? And you notice that that doesn't get the same kind of coverage that a case would if it's interracial. No, that's right. Uh, of course, of course, that's right. And that would be that's one set of major concerns. The concerns I hear, I want to come back to the the notion in a moment about, you know, how many white supremacists you've met. I, I have a similar story. We'll do that in a moment. But the things I've been kind of hearing from some in this audience, casual conversation and professional conversations is there is an odd 
orientation towards certain kinds of hate crimes at the expense of others. While there might be this instinctual wish not to categorize crimes by race so much as just thinking a crime is a crime against a human and that's bad enough, uh, there is this view that, um, particularly in the Jewish community and in the Asian American community, that those just aren't taken as seriously um, as other ethnic minority or race crimes against other ethnic minorities are. Are you seeing some of that, too, kind of a that's not as important as this kind of thing, which is also going to create a certain level of class or race resentment, maybe? I, I think that there's some, I think you see that attitude, and I think you understand looking at history why that attitude exists. The reality actually is, in fact, that there are far more proportionately hate crimes against Jews and Asians than there are against whites or blacks. Okay. And, and those are committed by whites and blacks and Latinos. Okay. So, I mean, in 2019, I, I wasn't able to get this data for 2020, but I mean, there were 1,521 hate crimes with a religious target, and except for maybe 100 or 200 Muslims, I think we can say almost all of those people were Jews. I mean, there aren't a lot of people, not not making fun of this, but going around beating up Protestants. Okay. So there's an enormous rate of attack. Now, when you look at blacks, for example, we said there were about 2,000 hate crime attacks against blacks. Right. The USA is nearly 15% black. Right. There's a black population of... 43 million, I, I believe. Say, yeah, right, 40, 30, 40, 45 million. Right, go ahead. Yeah, yeah and, and African Americans tend to live in urban, fairly high-violence areas where they encounter uh, Mexican, Italian, Irish, etc., Americans. It's not surprising at all that that figure was 2,000. Jewish Americans are a population of maybe 1% of the country, tend to be upper-middle class. There were 1,500 attacks essentially on Jews as versus 2,000 on blacks, and that, uh-huh. that's pretty remarkable. Uh-huh. There were more attacks on Jews than there were attacks on whites. Uh-huh. So even if they are underreported, I mean, you see an incredible number of attacks, again, 379 on Asians just last year, uh-huh. on those two groups. Um, so the idea that that's underreported is actually pretty scary. The idea that if we're trying to count more black and Latino cases and we're undercounting Jewish cases, then we've got a real issue with violence against Jews, I think would be the, the simplest way to put that. Interesting. Well put. Let me take a quick commercial break, Professor Riley. If I can keep you for one more second, I'll dig down a little bit about an interesting quote from uh, some anonymous FBI um, agents that I'll, I'll run by you and, and, and check out through your lens and your filter. Uh, I am Seth Liebson. He is a Professor Wilford Riley from Kentucky. State University, author of many books, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War, and Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About Here. You want to follow him on Twitter, Will Beast? It's a fantastic Twitter account and Twitter feed. You get smart just watching that. I'm Seth. He's Professor Riley. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Delighted to have Professor Wilford Riley with us. Um, Professor... There seems to be a tendency to everything we were speaking about in the first segment, the focus on uh, hate crimes that the administration um, uh, uh, highlighted yesterday at their at their special conference on it. There's an attendant um, concern. I obviously only hear from it from people of a conservative bent that it feels like it has the um, there is an air about some of this could end up targeting political viewpoints. There's a quote 
in a Washington Times story I wanted to run by you from an anonymous FBI agent. And he said if they have a Gadsden flag and they own guns and they are mean at school board meetings, they're probably going to be considered something close to a domestic terrorist. Now, I know domestic terrorism and hate crimes aren't exactly in the same category of what we're talking about, but they do tend to overlap with this overt concern that you're hearing from the administration and their focus on things like white supremacy and domestic extremism. They tend to get conflated in there, and conservative elements in this country start to get a little nervous, if not paranoid. I wonder, should they be nervous or paranoid? <laughs> That's the question. Uh, I, think, I think right now, nervous. I, to me, this is, this is one of these weird decisions in terms of what to focus on. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, yeah. I've done some outreach work in jails. I trained as a lawyer before going on so on down the line. And not much recently, of course. But, I mean, there are a whole bunch of criminal groups in the United States. I mean, you have the, the large black gangs and cities I don't, I don't see any particular reason you wouldn't describe some of those as terrorist groups. I mean, you have groups like MS-13 on the Latino side, which in many cases literally are terrorist groups, narco-terrorists. Yep. Right. You have the, the biker groups, the Hells Angels, the Banditos, mostly Caucasian, some now integrated. Race isn't really the point here, but I mean, between those three blocks ethnically, you've, that's where you get to 20,000 murders a year. Right. So it seems to me that if you're the feds, if you're the president or the new top guy at the DEA and you come in and you want to make a splash, you could target really any of those. You could say something like, I want to wipe MS-13 out of this country. A recent Mexican president, I think a Fox, tried to do that. He wanted to get rid of all of the Honduran, Salvadoran, the non-Mexican criminals in the country. And it cost him some soldiers, but he, he made some steps toward doing that. Okay. This, this weird focus on... The enemy is white supremacist domestic terrorism. As a political scientist, I don't get. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would agree that if you're going to isolate your focus to terrorists, you're going to move all the gangbangers and narco-terrorists and so on aside, you're going to focus on technical terrorists, right. and then you're going to make it only domestic, eliminating Arab terrorists. The leading cause of terrorism in this country might be conservative terrorism. Like, the right would beat out Antifa like seven deaths to six. Okay. But compared to the 20,000 murders that we have because of the crime in this country, that seems like a really weird thing to focus on. And when I talk to law enforcement guys privately, everyone kind of agrees with that. But, yeah, I mean, right now... We seem to be kind of doing in reverse what some of our more conservative presidents like Bush have done. Remember, he got tired of the eco-terrorists when they were blowing up ski lodges and he went after them. Yeah. He started, like, looking looking for hippie girls at rallies yeah. and so on. Yeah. We're now doing something even sillier but in reverse. I mean, I remember Biden actually said he was right on the verge of declaring those parents that were going to school board rallies. Yeah. A dangerous organized movement or something was two steps below a terrorist group. I don't think that the people that are complaining about gender queer at the local school board meeting are a terror threat to the country. I I think you should focus on MS-13. That is indeed my professional opinion. So I don't don't know what what all this is. I think that my honest opinion on this is that politicians focus group things. I think that what probably worked really well with sort of MSNBC wine moms and yep. Biden's demographic, yep. you know, it's, it's around 5 p.m., we could, we could make fun of these guys, sure. is this sort of stuff, ultra-maga, yep. you know, white supremacist. I mean, and I, I think that's what he's kind of sticking with. The problem is that there aren't a whole lot of ultra-maga white supremacists. And, in fact, those two things are very different. Right. 
like the diverse gun and gym bros that you'll see at a Trump rally, the people that are actually in the Proud Boys, whose leader's a black Cuban, yeah. those guys are very different from Nazis. Right. So, I mean, first you're going to have to figure out what you're targeting, and then you're going to have to figure out if what you're targeting is dangerous at all. But in the meantime, you're going to see a lot of guys, like the people that weren't fighting on January 6th and were just walking around the Capitol lawn, those people should probably watch what they do online around law enforcement, and that's I'm not certain that's going to keep the country any safer. Well, speaking of keeping the country safer, safer, it was interesting. You said that, uh, you know, hate crimes constitute, you know, upwards of what we, we haven't hit 10,000. This is in a country, Ever. right? This is in a country where we have like what? It's somewhere around one and a half, 1.2 million violent crimes a year, maybe um, something in that. Oh, is more that, than that. Yeah. Is it? OK. So when we put it into that kind of context, do we worry you care about crime? I care about crime. You teach about it. Um, do we worry that we're, we're taking that we're that that we're missing a forest for some some specialized political trees? In other words, if we're chasing the wrong thing or we're chasing the minor or the smallest part of the thing, are we going to end up, you know, with the balloon expanding on the other side? We're just, we're missing the real problem in America, which is true, serious, violent crime. Uh, absolutely. One of the most shocking statistics that I found when I started doing serious political science, criminal justice research, that I repeat it pretty much every speech, is that interracial violent crime, first of all, is about 3% of crime, and second of all, it's 80% minority on white. Okay. And that's the exact opposite of any impression that you would get from the mainstream media. So in in terms of where you get that figure, first of all, there aren't 1.2 million crimes a year, although that was a good estimate from some of the more serious categories. There are about 20 million if you look at the FBI's index crime report, which comes out every year, and which is the violent crimes and the most serious property crimes, like carjacking and house burglary, so on. you got about 20 million crimes. Okay. Of those, the total number of crimes that involve, say, a black perp and a white victim or a white perp and a black victim is annually, almost every year, it's around 600,000. Okay. So 3% of serious crime is interracial violent crime, uh-huh. at least in the classic uh-huh. sense. That didn't include uh-huh. Chinese perps uh-huh. or anything uh-huh. like that. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And of that, it's black on white you know, four times as often as it is white on black. And neither group is a major threat to the other, but still, that is... That's the opposite of what you'd think watching the videos of Dylan Roof and so on, George Zimmerman, what we're we're constantly presented with. Sure. So, yes, I think that focusing on hate crime or even interracial crime more broadly, certainly white on black interracial crime is a major distraction from what crime actually looks like. I mean, if you look at murder last year, I mean, first of all, more than 50% of our murders, and this this has not always been the case, by the way, but following the police pullbacks in the 1960s, then in the 1990s, then the start of BLM, and then after George Floyd, as of right now, more than 50% of murders involve an African-American murderer and victim. Okay. Okay. Um, So about 50% of all murderers are young black guy kills young black guy. The other 50% are young, poor, white, or Spanish guy kills young, poor, white, or Spanish guy. And it's almost exactly right down the middle with those two groups.
That's so that, that's what crime looks like. It's two young poor men, and then there's a handgun involved. There's nothing complex. There's nothing political. I would love to have you back uh, in the uh, very near future and talk about getting our hands around that, Dr. Raleigh. You've been generous with your time, as you are your scholarship. I appreciate you so very, very much, sir. Thank you very much. You want to uh, follow this guy on Twitter, Will underscore Duh underscore Beast 630. You want his books, of course, Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Coming off that last interview, uh, talking about serious uh, crime around the country with uh, Professor Riley, uh, one of our great crime fighters, uh, one of the great crime fighters in the country we are blessed to have as our Maricopa County attorney. She is Rachel Mitchell. She is up for election this November. You want to help this campaign out, go to rachelmitchellformaricopa.com. That's rachelmitchellformaricopa.com. I heartily endorse her. And I want people to understand, Rachel, feel free to say something about this if you want. I want people to understand when they think about Arizona not becoming California or Chicago or Philadelphia, when they think about not Californian Arizona, this is the race. It's the county attorney and district attorney that is ground zero for keeping us safe and from keeping that kind of social destruction from taking place here. Rachel Mitchell, welcome back. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes, thank you for having me. And 100 percent, I think people tend to look at other races for that and you know, Los Angeles and all of those other places that are just disaster areas are not that way because of the governor or the White House. Right. They're that way because you have a district or a county attorney who will not enforce the law. San Francisco figured that out too late. They got rid of Chesa Budin and they put a prosecutor in there, but it's going to take years to rebuild. Well put. Much better put than I did. It's this race, county attorney for Maricopa, in our case, that wants to prevent us. That is the place to go and vote and support Rachel Mitchell to prevent us from becoming San Francisco or Los Angeles. We don't have to wait, in other words, until it's too late. Rachel, a lot of lot of different things uh, affecting our community. This is a story I can't. Um, it's an ongoing story. My gosh, it seems this headline is once a week. But the latest one. Border officers in Arizona find 150,000 rainbow fentanyl pills in a gas tank and in spare tires in separate bus. This fentanyl thing, it's not relenting here, Rachel, is it? No, it's not. It is an incredible epidemic. Uh, We are seeing large, large amounts like that. And, you know, I mean, think of what is not being detected. And, you know, my my heart broke today as I I just saw the story out of Los Angeles where a 15-year-old girl um, took a fentanyl pill that was, you know, colored like, you know, one of the rainbow colors. And she died from it. And, you know, what people need to understand is they look like candy, and yet two out of five have a lethal dose of fentanyl. Wow. Well, this is one of the reasons, among many, I am uh, so supportive of you is your seriousness on this issue. You uh, earlier this summer uh, unveiled a program, uh, uh, a campaign, a one pill can kill campaign to to get people to understand and appreciate what we're talking about here, understanding the risk of opioids and the attraction to them that can lead to one and done. You want to say a word about that campaign, one pill can kill? Yes, absolutely. And I'd like to bring up, we're doing a forum uh, at Independence High School in Glendale 
On um, the 27th of this month at 6 p.m., we're going to have a number of experts there to talk to parents because one of the disturbing things that we have found out is from the Arizona Youth Survey that a large percentage, 50% uh, of, for example, 8th graders, have never heard of fentanyl. Wow. And, you know, how do you guard against it if you don't know what it is? And I'm going to bet that the percentage of parents is even lower. I bet you're right. Uh, there's a lot. You know, I'm glad you brought up the Arizona Youth Survey. Let, let me let me commend that to the audience that's interested in this. I guess we'll get results from the latest one in about a month or so, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But one of the interesting things you can find in the Arizona Youth Survey is also where these children, where our youth are getting these uh, drugs, these poisons, if you will. And mm-hmm. huge numbers, almost 50 percent in some of these cases are gotten, are received from, you know, an adult, uh, whether it's a family, whether a member, whether it's a friend, whether it's an adult. It's not it's not about, you know, always kids just uh, going in and getting them at parties, um, you know, from other kids. It's it's an adult problem as much as it is a youth problem, quite frankly. Absolutely. And, you know, the the cartel is using both older teenagers and young adults yeah. to bring these pills over the, the uh, border. So it's, it's, you know, they're getting caught and now they're in trouble, rightly so. But, I mean, it's affecting a lot of people. I have to take a quick commercial break. When I come back, uh, Rachel, I'd like to do a slightly longer segment with you. This was our short segment. I'd like to do a longer segment with you and talk about uh, the stakes here, given, you know, the direction we can go, which is being serious about crime, being serious about going after the fentanyl traffickers, or, you know, easing up on the gas pedal on it and putting the brake on it because, you know, People don't quite understand it, but if they don't vote for you, that's what they're going to get. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can go to your opponent's website to see that she's telling you that's pretty much what you're going to get, given her strategies to fight crime and protect our community. I'm Seth Liebson. She's Rachel Mitchell, our county attorney. Help this race out. Help this great candidate out. Help this great county attorney out by going to rachelmitchellformaricopa.com. I'm Seth. She's Rachel. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, portions of which are brought to you by the good people at Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Balanceofnature.com is where you can go to get the fruits and veggies that are 100% pure. No added sugar, no added colors, no added anything. Just a blend of 16 whole fruits and 15 whole vegetables boost your immunity boost your health boost your energy with pure potent plant power balanceofnature.com make sure to use discount code balance rachel mitchell is our guest she is our county attorney she is running to uh, be elected for another four for a four-year term uh, this november and rachel it's not as if this election is happening in a vacuum you have an opponent and I was looking at your opponent's website. Uh, she uh, Two things I want to talk to you about that she's uh, promoting on her website. She says she wants to get – she wants to eliminate mandatory minimum laws so as to free up mm-hmm. judges' hands. Can you talk to us about that, what that would mean, what that would look like? Sure. I mean, that was an experiment that Arizona tried years ago. And it failed, which is why the state legislature went to mandatory minimums so that they could ensure that dangerous people would be held accountable. And she, what she does is she conflates, 
you know, people who have drug addiction with people who are getting mandatory minimums. Let me tell you some of the cases that have mandatory minimums. Selling, you know, dangerous drugs, molesting children, murdering somebody, seriously physically abusing a child. Those are some that have mandatory minimums. A lot of the other crimes, stealing a car, breaking into a house, those have a, an ability for the judge to impose probation on the first offense. That, that's what's so interesting is people don't understand how, shall we say, uh, rehabilitative uh, our criminal justice system already is, which gets me to another thing on her website. And you brought it up a little bit just a moment ago, Rachel, which is she says, and it's a bullet point, treating addiction and drug offenses as the health crisis they are and not prosecuting nonviolent drug motivated crimes. Arizona's actually already been a leader on getting, um, you know, people who are caught with possession or just as users, not traffickers necessarily, but users. Uh, already, we have been a leader on this for well over 20 years. What is she talking about? You know, I have no idea. Okay. Um, <laughs> All right, you're as confused ago, as I am. We went to, we went to a, uh, a system where you can't even get prison right. for your first drug offense. Right. It is only probation eligible. So... I don't know if it's because, you know, she has never prosecuted a day in her life in Arizona or if it's just a way to get people's attention, but it, it's just simply false. Nonviolent drug motivated crimes. This is an interesting phrase she uses. This issue of nonviolent mm-hmm. crimes. Take even the drug part out of this. I mean, nonviolent crimes aren't unserious crimes. I mean, you could have robbery as a not considered a nonviolent crime. You could have larceny as considered a nonviolent crime, the way some people use this terminology. Am I wrong about this? Mm-hmm. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, somebody breaking into your house and stealing everything out of it. That would be considered nonviolent uh, crime. Uh, somebody stealing your car, uh, cutting out your catalytic converter, that's all nonviolent crime. And yet it really has an impact. Uh, organized retail theft can be largely nonviolent. Yeah, that's so, r- that's it, right. That's right. Yeah. When you see these snap and grabs or what are, what are they calling them here? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly mm-hmm. right. Exactly right. That can be considered a nonviolent crime. And yet that's how that's that's how cities become crime ridden. Uh, That's how cities become Los Angeles and San Francisco, isn't it? Right. I mean, that doesn't mean that it should that people who commit those crimes should not be held accountable, because we've seen what's happening in these other cities like Los Angeles and Chicago, where when you let the small stuff skate or the, quote, nonviolent stuff, you know, them get away with it then it just creates that atmosphere of lawlessness that leads to much more serious crimes. And, and, and this, this issue um, that you know, your opponent is talking about is all wrapped up in not only just eliminating things like mandatory minimums, it's part of a whole view of law enforcement or maybe law unenforcement, isn't it? Because attendant to that mm-hmm. is also the elimination of cash bail, right? Yes, um, she absolutely has advocated for that. She's advocated for defunding the police. It was interesting last night in the debate that we had, she adamantly denied ever advocating for defunding the police. And uh, one of the news stations got a hold of uh, the tw- her tweet where she advocated taking $25 million away from the Phoenix Police Department. Right. And, you know, when you get rid of bail, you're not doing the offender any favors. 
when they are out on the street to commit more and more serious crimes and their punishment just starts getting racked up, um, it, that is not a, a kind thing to do. When we see these kinds of stories on TV, often in other cities, uh, New York seems to be particularly uh, uh, particularly acute with this problem. And we see these um, violent robberies, these smash and grabs, uh, sometimes the uh, battery, sometimes the killing of other people mm-hmm. caught on camera. And we learned that this person, you know, was only held a year ago or had a long rap sheet or was only released two years ago. This is part mm-hmm. of that. We scratch our heads and say, why are they even on the streets? Well, because of bail reform and because of getting rid of these mandatory minimums. That's why. Right, Rachel? Absolutely. I mean, look at that school teacher that was kidnapped and killed in Memphis. Right. That was somebody that was released too early. The individual that drove around live streaming him shooting people, that was somebody that had gotten out when he shouldn't have. So, you know, it, it sounds great. They'll say they'll use buzzwords like, oh, we're not going to punish poverty right. by setting bail too high. But what that means is we're going to let everybody out. Right. And, you know, one thing that was incredibly disturbing to me last night during the, ba- the debate was she has expanded her definition of public health crisis to not only include drugs, but now to include gun-related crime. Oh, perfect. Okay. <laughs> and, perfect. you know, I mean, I'll acknowledge it's a health crisis for the person who gets shot. Sure. But for the person who's doing the shooting, that person needs to be locked up. Good for you. Good for you, Rachel Mitchell. I'm so glad you are our county attorney. I am so glad you are running to be elected for a full term in November. Again, folks, if you want to help Rachel Mitchell out, and I beg of you, please do. Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com. That's Rachel Mitchell for Maricopa.com. As I go to break, let me put in a word for my friends over at Y-Refi. If you are looking for a remarkable investment opportunity with a great return for investors, check out Y-Refi. They are a due diligence firm that is offering up a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all on a secure, collateralized portfolio. You can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's investyrefi.com. Investors who do well by doing good. You can be a part of it, too. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Thank you for spending some of your afternoon with us, some of your week with us. I hope you go into the weekend. Um, It's Constitution Day tomorrow. Uh, Take a look at um, take a look at some constitutional history, some serious constitutional history. Um, You can get it. From um, if you want to if you if you want to find great constitutional historians to read, I'll give them to you. Wilford McClay, he is one of the best. He has a history book out now, Land of Hope. You can read William Bennett's uh, three volume or any volume history of America, America, the last best hope. You can read Daniel Borston. You could read David McCullough. You could read Arthur Schlesinger. You can read any number of good ones, but read something. Teach something to your children about the Constitution. I'll say something about it Monday. It's uh, much in disrepair and disrepute right now, but 235 years of uh, something that the founders weren't sure we could keep or would last this long. Something good about it kept it and us. The question is, going forward... Are we hewing more and closer to it, 
or moving farther and farther away from it. And if we're moving farther and farther away from it, what will the next 235 years look like? Will there be another 235 years? Something new came with our Constitution. New order of the ages. Something new. It's still worth keeping. It's still a beautiful thing. It's still, as both Martin Luther King and Frederick Frederick Douglass called it, a glorious liberty document. In fact, they called it magnificent. Take it seriously. I'm Seth Leibson. Until Monday, God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.